I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. Now, if you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. Some background thrown in on the actors, information about the director, and perhaps, if I'm doing my job, you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe! This week, we're continuing our November theme, Ethics in Motion. That's been our fun selection of movies that grapple with some interesting themes as to just what does it mean to be a good person. And this week, we are brushing past that notion of death, screening the 1968 cult black comedy classic, Bye Bye Braverman. Join us! So full disclosure, this was not a film I've known about for a really long time. No, my first exposure to this week's movie happened about five years ago, and from that time on, it had been on my radar. You see, I do what I'm often prone to do. I, I tap a certain actor or a certain director, and then I just try to work my way through their filmography. And at the time, I was coming off of being involved in a class where I'd watch a bunch of war films. And I had watched George Siegel in a little movie called The Bridge at Remagen, and he was great in it, and I had liked George Siegel in a bunch of other things. So I thought, hey, this was the chance. I, I could sit down and I could really work my way through a lot of what he's done on screen. Now, like many of you, I had grown up seeing him in other films. Uh, my dad, at a young age, introduced me to The Hot Rock. That's a classic, classic movie. It's going to be a future episode for sure. Then, of course, who hasn't seen him? He's in Look Who's Talking. But other people might not be familiar with his cinematic work. They think of him from his work on TV. They first were introduced to George Siegel, seeing him in shows like Just Shoot Me, or at least up until his untimely death, where he played the grandfather on The Goldbergs. But back in this time, as I was working my th way through, I was seeing a bunch of interesting stuff. I was taking in Born to Win, I got to see Where's Papa, I got to watch Bloom in Love. And I gotta say, they were great. I really enjoyed them. And that's right around the same time I had heard that there was this great movie called Bye Bye Braverman, and it had George Siegel in it. But so much more. Braverman, on its own, really takes the cake when you compare it to a lot of those other movies. And I'll say this, it's the kind of movie they truly don't make anymore. I don't mean that like old man Chris, although sure, bust out an old man Chris joke, but really it's the sort of slice of life film that ends up being a time capsule for the era that it was created in. So, you know, even if the film itself wasn't a good movie, although I will assure you, yes it is, it's so interesting and unique. You get to watch this odd time and see parts of New York City that don't exist anymore. 
It's a film that was shot during the Mad Men era. I mean, you're seeing the late 60s New York before things really took a downturn, before things got ugly and gross in the 70s. Which, by the way, ugly and gross New York is something I'm equally interested in. It has its own unique flair and charm. But this is really this unique little time capsule that you're taking in. And I mean, again, you're watching a film that's about characters interacting, sitting around, waiting, talking. There's no real conflict here other than a group of people that are striving to try to find their deceased friend's funeral. And then sort of by way of inference and chatting, they're all coping with the loss in their own unique way. Just the kind of thing that people would not really consider to be the makings of a great dark comedy. But again, I'll assure you, it's worth it. Now, if this were a film that was made today, and don't worry, it won't be, I'm sure the powers that are behind it would most likely want to slap on and inspired by a true story, even though the source material for this film does come from a fairly well-regarded 1964 Wallace Markfield novel. But let's get down to brass tacks. If you're going to dig into that novel, you should first ask yourself the following question. What do you know about Isaac Rosenfeld? Isaac Rosenfeld was a writer who became quite prominent in the mid-1940s. He was born in 1918 here in good old Chicago, Illinois, but Rosenfeld himself would end up coming to prominence in New York, primarily within the Jewish intellectual scene of the late 1940s and going into the early 1950s. He wrote a bunch of short stories, some think pieces, and he contributed articles uh, a lot of times satire, to both The Nation, The New Leader, The New Republic, and The Partisan Review. Now, I, I feel I should at least give a little bit of background. Some of those other ones are still in circulation, but The Partisan Review, initially, it was a small, small publication that was started by sort of the American Communist Party. But lest ye start to get worried... It went through several iterations over the decades, and basically by the time you get to the 1950s, what you have is the Partisan Review is standing in as being a pro-social democratic magazine that is pro-democracy, staunchly anti-Stalinist, and very much opposed to what was happening over in the Soviet Republic. Um, also, by the way, if you're worried, uh, the government was funding it. That is to say, our own American government was funding it rather covertly to try to get people to understand that there's a good side to what positive socialism in a democracy looks like versus the, of course, evils of communism. So, lest you think this is a bunch of weird pinkos, no, this is actually a fairly well-regarded, established magazine. Doesn't matter though. Rosenfeld wrote for all of these and more, and in his time he managed to cultivate a small cadre of really loyal followers, and he established himself as sort of this new golden boy amongst the literary elite of the day. He was friends with fellow writers and authors like Harold Rosenberg, Paul Goodman, Irving Howe, Philip Robb, and Clement Greenberg. And honestly, it really looked like everything was coming up roses for this young intellectual. He's getting ink spilled both for him and about what he's writing. 
And really, it was going great until he died very, very suddenly of an unexpected heart attack at the age of 38. That was in 1956. And his premature death really rocked his literary critics and the people in his circles. And it caused many of his friends to comment that, you know, his work was good, but this was really a tragedy because he had so much untouched, untapped potential. And he really didn't leave a ton behind other than a couple of things that he wrote. It was noted that he had established himself as this great mind. All the great work that people were expecting from him, it really hadn't manifested yet. So it kind of left this hole in this literary world narrative of what could have been a really amazing sight to see had Rosenfeld actually lived. And thus, his death was viewed nothing short of a wasted opportunity. Now, Right around this time in the early 60s, novelist Wallace Markfeld, who had known Rosenfeld and a bunch of the people in his circle, decided that he was going to use the author's own death to craft a comedic story about the very same situation. He would write about a well-regarded writer's death, and then he would show his other four friends, who themselves were writers, having to go through the trials and tribulations of spending a day traveling around New York City in an attempt to pay their respects to their passed-on comrade. This became the novel To an Early Grave, and it was born and laid out from the groundwork that we've established here with Rosenfeld, and it would become the story that established this week's film, Bye Bye Braverman. Now, the novel itself gets published in 1964. It does fairly well, it's well regarded, it's considered humorous, and right around this time, director Sidney LeMay, who had been... And right around this time, And right around this time, director Sidney Lumet had been having such success with dramas. He had gone through the 1950s just making money hand over fist and putting out classic work. Projects like Twelve Angry Men in 57, That Kind of Woman in 59, A View from the Bridge in 62. He did The Pawnbroker in 64, Failsafe in 64, The Hill with Sean Connery in 65, the Deadly Affair in 66, he was on a roll. But Lamette wanted to do something that would be funny, and he had read Markfeld's book, and he really wanted this to be his next project. He wanted the chance to bring comedy to the big screen, and this was comedy amongst people that he himself felt he grew up with. He knew men who lived in the village like this, who were the elite liberal intelligentsia. He liked their company, and he knew some of the players here. To him, this was a perfect fit. So, Lamette went, and he hired on Herbert Sargent to help craft a screenplay. After all, this was going to be his first foray into comedy. Why not pick somebody who had comedic chops? And if you wanted to get comedy done, you went to Herbert Sargent. Sargent, in the day, was a very well-known comedy writer, and for the time, he had been working with, oh, some little unknowns, guys like Steve Allen over at NBC. And then, he had put in a lot of time working on comedy and variety specials for some other no-name people, like Petula Clark, Bing Crosby, Alan King, Milton Berle, 
Sammy Davis Jr., Perry Como, and Lily Tomlin. Clearly, the man knew funny. And by the 1970s, he would go on to become a writer and a producer for both The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and then later he would be in on the ground floor for a little upstart show called Saturday Night Live. In short, the guy had talent. And it was a solid fit for Lamette to use to craft a proper adaptation of this very dark comedy. Lamette got Warner Brothers to come on board and back his desired play. They were getting ready to make a comedy about four friends that were trying to find a funeral in a car. And they would probably now consider that to be a real cinematic steal, because they were going to put up $800,000 to spend shooting in New York during the spring of 1967. Shooting throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens under the direction of an amazing cinematographer, Boris Kaufman, who by this time had also had some just minor works under his own belt, such as The Garden of Eden, Twelve Angry Men, Splendor in the Grass, Long Day's Journey into Night, and of course The Pawnbroker. Now, all that was needed was a killer cast, but not to worry, Lamette had already gotten who he wanted in mind. George Siegel was coming in hot off of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and he was cast as our lead, the sensitive PR writer Moreau Reef. Jack Warden, who at this time still hadn't quite come into his own, he was still playing a lot of small parts in war pictures like Run Silent, Run Deep, or showing up in movies like Donovan's Reef and The Thin Red Line. He was cast here to be the aging playboy aspiring poet, Barnett Weinstein. Sorel Book, who most of you would know as being Boss Hogg on the show The Dukes of Hazard, he himself at this point was still a real working actor, and he had appeared in Failsafe under Lumet previously, and now he was tapped to play the uptight Holly Levine. Rounding out our main quartet, we have Joseph Wiseman, aka Dr. No himself from the titular James Bond movie. He was tapped to play the prickly Felix Ottenstein, a former professor of all these young men in this film. Throw in the talent of comedian Godfrey Cambridge, who had already worked with several of the cast members in various off-Broadway productions. Now he was having his own time to shine as a scene-stealing taxi driver. Then you also have the long-winded rabbi, who is played by comedian Alan King, who does a real thankless task here. Um, he ends up ruffling a bunch of feathers after the fact when this movie came out. We'll talk about that later. But honestly, he's really great in the scenes he has. Knowing that, throw in three of the most beautiful female stars of the day. Zora Lampert, Phyllis Newman, and Jessica Walters, to respectively play the wives and girlfriends of this group of writers, and what you have here is a really incredible pool of talent to choose from. Braverman ended up finishing shooting in the summer of 1967, but it would sit and wait for release until the following February of 1968. But folks, I gotta tell you, you've been more than patient with me listening to me prattle on. So how's about this? I'll stop my yapping and we'll get on to that very loose trailer. What do you say? Have you seen Braverman dancing? Bring 
each moment sublime. Notice him gracefully fly by, hoping the band never falls. For when it does, and it's by by, by by to braver man's walls. of Morrow Reef, Barnett Weinstein, and Holly Levine, all as children. Three childhood friends, playing games, hanging out at the local corner store, going to movies, meeting girls, and then we get to see them as young, fresh-faced college students in 1948, being drawn to an up-and-coming professor and political aspirant, Felix Ottenstein, as played by Joseph Wiseman. We then jump ahead 20 years to one fateful Sunday morning, when first, in the Upper East Side, Moreau, played by George Siegel, is now a PR writer, and he is with his wife Etta, Zora Lampert, and they get awakened by a frantic telephone call from one Inez Braverman, played by Jessica Walter. Something horrible has happened. When you hear the click of my hanging up, the time will be exactly 8.31 and 35 seconds a.m. Sunday morning early, which is why I'm hanging up. Tomorrow, it's Inez. Braverman. Look, baby. I have some very, very bad news. What? Inez? What's the matter? Go ahead. He calls you. Where's this father? Go on. Leslie's dead. How much did I lend Leslie Braverman? $135. 37. Oh, my God, Agnes. Do you know what you're saying? Yeah, I know what I'm saying. A coronary in Brooklyn. Friday night on the street. He was in Brooklyn all this time in the city. How, how is it he didn't call me? That's the very least he could have done. Yeah, look, baby. Am I imposing? Oh, I'm imposing. But I have nobody. So come over here. You'll go to the funeral. You'll call the boys. Do me that favor. I, 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 I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I, I'm not dressed. <laughs> I'm not really up. I, uh, I, I, I haven't even had my juice yet. I can't squeeze juice. You'll come here. I'll make you breakfast. Give me an hour. I'll make it an hour and a half. And God bless you, baby. 
off the bat, Etta is not thrilled. Inez has had a habit of throwing herself at Moreau whenever he's around, and she ends up accusing Moreau of being upset that they moved to their current location, versus staying with their intellectual friends out in the village. She asks her husband not to go, not to try to rally the old gang. But Moreau is steadfast. He's going to go. When Etta asks him if he knows exactly why he's going, Moreau says no, which causes his wife to ask, well, when you find out, you please tell me, to which Moreau, shaving, agrees to do. He angrily looks in the mirror as he preps for the day, fantasizing that it was him that died, and, of course, a street cop has to come and let Etta know of his passing, with her, of course, lamenting of being short with him that morning, refusing to squeeze him his orange juice, noting that his book will now never be published, and sobbing. That thought makes Moreau, at least for a brief moment, smile. We then, of course, shift to the Upper West Side, where Professor Felix Ottenstein is enjoying breakfast at a diner with his 20-something-year-old son, Max, as played by Anthony Holland. There's been some estrangement between the two of them since Felix's wife has died, and Max has been trying to keep his father abreast of his life. You know, a young Turk, working in a copy shop, trying to make his way. The exchange becomes a little awkward when Max asks his father to stop cutting him down publicly, and then requests that he get a loan of some money to continue on with his education so he can get his Ph.D., a request that sends Ottenstein into a fury, complaining that he doesn't want to keep financing his son's dreams. Max pushes back, though. Ottenstein likes to be a big man. He likes to be generous with his money. He's the generous intellectual. But he notes whenever the family needs things, wants things, citing his deceased mother, there was always hand-wringing and arguments rather than reaching in and helping out. With this accusation, Felix loses his temper and slaps his son in public, causing Max to quietly get up and take his leave, clearly leaving Felix regretful for losing his temper at the mention of his deceased wife. We shift again to the Lower East Side now, where Holly Levine lives, as played by Sorel Book, now a literary critic. He resides in a well-appointed studio apartment, trying to begin the first line of a scathing review of another author's work, but constantly finding reasons to comically procrastinate and avoid his task. He looks down on his newly purchased Volkswagen Beetle, he absentmindedly cleans things on his desk, he sharpens pencils, he smokes. We finally shift to the Lower East Side, where we get to see essayist, poet, and aging Lothario, Barnett Weinstein, as played by Jack Warden, attempting to enjoy a Sunday morning tryst with his long-suffering girlfriend, Myra Mendelbaum, as played by Phyllis Newman. But that isn't going so well, with the both of them arguing about the quality of the time they spend together and how Myra has to deal with Weinstein's judgmental mother. Moreau gets to Braverman's apartment, and he has to contend with the acerbic, yet somehow still horned-up Inez, who attempts to get him to fall into bed with her, all while ranting about her late husband's infidelity. Also, while simultaneously telling her daughter to go run some errands to prep for the funeral for the day. I'm sorry, baby, it's not the occasion. That's all right, don't you? Oh, sweetie! Look, honey, you'll do me a big favor, yeah? You'll go downstairs, you'll go into the delicatessen. 
And make sure Mr. Deansbury waits on you, not the wife. A terrible bitch. You'll tell him, Mr. Deansbury, my mother wants uh, two regular coffee and two, uh, better say four, four prune Danish. Now, you'll bring down these deposit bottles and the rest you can charge, okay? You got it, Sue? Don't send it up and... set for a divorce? I knew and I didn't know. I mean, I ran into Hardy Katzman about a year ago and he dropped all sorts of hints, but who could be definite? <laughs> it was building up for years. I think Leslie lived only to punish and needle me. And that's how he got his kicks. If I was a fly? Hey, come on. He wasn't such a monster. <laughs> and talking like that, you only do yourself harm. Sure. What do I know? Who am I? I was only the, uh, coffee server. He was the big shot intellectual. He was the intimate friend of Kafka and Kierkegaard while I was rattling cups in the kitchen and making dialogue with the other broken-down wives about wee-wee and formula and spaying cats in the pill and where do you get the best graded pharmacy? Oh, honestly, you're not being fair. Leslie was a writer, a creative person. You couldn't think up his stories and he couldn't make your coffee. <laughs> Moreau does manage to get the widow under control and he begins to call friends, convincing each of them to meet up with him. And of course, they're going to let Levine drive as he owns a car and a new car to boot. It's also a running joke that he isn't a very good driver. And while the friends are all happy to see each other, they start teasing right off the bat about their current writing projects, quizzing each other over pop culture and comics, they invariably fall into bad habits of bickering about a number of small things. For example, Ottenstein is angry that he, an intellectual Jew, has to suffer the indignity of riding around in a German-made automobile. But they eventually convince him that it's not about him. They're all doing this for Leslie. And thus, they end up spending the better part of the morning, and into the early afternoon, driving around the city, getting hopelessly lost in Brooklyn, stopping often to get directions and sample various foods, taking insights, and catching up. You see, the problem they find themselves having is Inez gave them horribly vague instructions as to where to find the funeral, which is somewhere out on Ocean Parkway, a stretch of road that none of the four are very familiar with. Well, he may be losing his memory, but not as fast as he's losing his hair. You look like an avant-garde Yul Brunner. Yul Brunner shaves his head. I'm authentic. Another castle crumble. Speaking of avant-garde, what else is new? Well, there's a possibility, actually a strong likelihood, that I shall be giving a popular culture course this fall. From Little Nemo to Little Ab. <laughs> <laughs> You're displeased? Well, I don't know. I mean, is that for you? Is it like they say in the quarterlies, your metier? 
My piece on John Ford has been twice anthologized. Twice! Granted, granted. You grasp with the gap between low, middle, and high middle culture? Perfect. Your cinematic depth analysis, I wouldn't want better. I agree. But when it comes to comic strips and the such, huh? Oh, man, I mean, you just don't know. Oh, man, he is great! Now, listen, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being less than fair. In which case, answer me this. Who used to say in moments of angst, Golly, Moses, I got the wind whams all over. Rooney, Rooney, little Annie Rooney. Uh, 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 let's see here. Don Winslow of the Navy, his rank. Commander. Uh, the nemesis of Bim Gump. Wait, wait. She wore a veil. She'd always drug him. Madams and... Uh... <laughs> the protectors of Daddy Warbucks. Punjab, Punjab, and the ass. The Rinkadinks. From who and where? From Winnie Winkle, the club. There was Perry, the little brother. There was Spud, and there was Chink. And there was who else? That's all. That's all? That's all? I give up. Come on! One more, the most important one. More the hat here, the more on face. You always used to say, yeah, you just a good boy, Perry. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I remember. Now, recall and recollect. Danny Dimple. Bear in mind, however, that he was the last arrival. That his position with the Rinky Dinks was essentially a fringe position. He knows As they drive past a number of wrong cemeteries, Reef once again daydreams that he himself has died and that Etta is having an argument over the man working on carving his tombstone, noting they've misspelled his name and basically how he could never get a break in his real life. Eventually, all the driving around causes the need for a pit stop, just to empty bladders and allow for gas to be purchased. But Levine insists that his car will only get gas from an Amico gas station, which of course prolongs their search as he finally sees one and ends up making a broad turn across traffic while not paying attention, he gets into a minor fender bender with a taxi cab, one whose driver turns out to be a rather gregarious man, played by Godfrey Cambridge. The damage to the VW bug is minimal, and the men in the car are all under the agreement that the bumper damage sustained is really nothing. But Levine is enraged, and he doesn't want to listen to them, and doesn't want to hear their reassurance. The cabbie has his license, has insurance, and he comes over to exchange information with them. And as he starts to kibitz with them and share that he himself is indeed a practicing Jew, in spite of their surprise with him being an African-American gentleman, the other men start talking to him, and they actually start to like and agree with the cabbie. And you guys Jewish? None of your business. Well, it has nothing to do with the accident. Ashamed. Ask me, as the Ottenstein. Attaboy. You said it. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know the kind of Jew you are. Maybe you fast all day, Yom Kippur. Or maybe you look at it like me. You figure it's all a crock. Next economic factor. What caused all the war, made all the hate? Religion, right? What about uh, race? Too obvious. Never Too mind. Continue. Religion. And what's religion? Temple. 
praying, holiday, nah. It's making the other fella feel nice inside. It's treating him like he's also a person, right? Very nicely put. That's the way I look at it. I should have no rest. Like a person, right? Right. I'll show you my kind of guy. I have a boss, an Italian, but he speaks a great Jewish. Make a hager, make some schwarz, everything. Now, a year and a half, he promises me, he say, I go to Italy, I bring you a present. So he goes, and I get it. Can you see it? St. Francis. I need it, like I need a sun lamp. I'll just tell it waxed. But my kind of guy, he wears it. He figures not every day be brotherhood week. That's human feeling and toleration. Don't hurt the next one. That's my kind of religion. Levine is not having any of the cabbie's rhetoric and wants to fight him. But the chaps end up talking him out of it, and instead they get the two gentlemen to agree to have a schoolyard style slap fight, which humorously ends in a draw. They of course end up exchanging insurance information, the driver shares with them a drink and helps point them where they need to go, telling them to take the bottle of booze with them to help with their journey. The quartet end up continuing on, steadily getting snockered on the booze handed out, and stopping multiple times for further food and directions, before they finally stop at a synagogue they think is the correct one, and stumble in while the rabbi, as played by Alan King, is presiding over a long and overly dramatic service, noting that the crowd for Braverman is packed. The quartet all start goofing off and cutting up during the service, and Reef again flashes to his own perceived funeral and wonders who would actually come if he were to die, envisioning an empty room. Suddenly, as the rabbi starts to comment upon the dead man himself, they begin to wonder, what exactly is he talking about? As they all stand to move up to the front to pay their final respects to the body, they quickly realize they have been at the wrong funeral for the wrong man this entire time. Reef makes the argument as they go to leave, you know, we sat through a funeral, we showed up, and in spite of it being the wrong one, Leslie's still dead and we did our duty. But Ottenstein will not hear of it. We will find the funeral, we'll find Leslie, and we will honor our friend. So they all take to the car again and work their way up the parkway, stopping for directions, hamburgers, visiting every temple they come across. Finally, they get to the appropriate funeral, and they walk out amongst the gravestones to make it to the graveside service. Reef ends up wandering amongst the seemingly endless rows of headstones, talking to the dead, marveling at all the things they themselves have gone through, and noting giving a speech to them on all the things they have missed since they've passed on. Well, folks, what can I tell you? You're all so smug and you're certain. Well, let's see. We got over the Depression. We got over Hitler! Skizix is married and has his hands full with the kids. This 
discount houses are very big lately. Likewise, uh, mutual funds, likewise, paperback books, likewise, tolerance, brotherhood, uh, human relations, intergroup harmony. Likewise, the Jets. Whole families can charge a special place to Israel. Television. Still space. Black princes from Africa eat at the automat. Uh, everybody seems to have good taste. But still not in grave markers. Bus drivers are becoming more vicious. The big department stores have gone downhill. Also, the big movie houses, historical novels, uh, wrapping paper, kitchen matches, pencil sharpeners, <laughs> orange drink. Children don't think death is impossible for them anymore. Air pollution's very big. Infant mortality is down, suicides are up. So is crime, so is divorce. Smiling Jack is married. Warner Baxter, Richard Dix, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, Humphrey Bogart, they all die. We're going to the moon. We've orbited the Earth. We can fly anywhere in the world in half a day. Cents plane costs seven cents. You can't get a good egg cream anyway. And laundries ruin your shirt. Teenage girls are pretty. Boys are ugly, but smarter. It looks like there'll always be war veterans. Newspaper men know more than government people. Everybody would like to be rich. Somewhere I read it costs $3,500 a year to be poor. I don't read uh, Blondie and Dagwood anymore, or Maggie and Jigs. Uh, housing developments are bigger. Planned communities are all over the place. The doctors have invented things that could have kept some of you alive a little longer. I, I, I don't think you missed too much. In truth, the friends have missed the main service, but they're all there for the graveside burial, with a much smaller crowd than anticipated for their well-regarded friend. Reef flashes to his own false internment, imagining what it would be like to be buried. Of course, in his vision, he has to do the whole process himself, getting out of the box, covering himself up with dirt. The funeral, though, ends, and the four friends end up quietly driving back together, with Ottenstein sharing his displeasure that none of the men had yet to seemingly shed a tear for their departed friend, even though they've done nothing all day but try to find him. They all try to joke about it, but the three are indeed left a bit chastened. Weinstein is the first to be dropped off, running to a payphone to both check in with his mother, and then, before his friends drive off, he attempts to get them to commit to meet with him again, soon. Hey, how about next Thursday? Promising that they can all meet up, have some soup together, take in a film festival, make a whole night out of it. And the gents do half-heartedly agree. Ottenstein is dropped off next, walking quietly into his house, proud and alone. Reef is dropped off last, 
He tries to get Levine to come up, see the new place, talk to Etta, but Levine begs off, having to get back to his apartment and get to work. Reef, one last time, tries to assure his friend that the car has really not been damaged that badly. And he gives him a standing invite. Anytime you want to come, you're welcome to visit. But the rotund critic is getting kind of short and cranky with the day, and noncommittally drives off, leaving Reef alone to walk back into his apartment and to go see his wife. Etta greets him and asks if he's sorry for being so snarky with her that morning, but he points out, hey, you were the one that was short with me, and you wouldn't give me juice. He then, tiredly, collapses on the bed, and when she asks him if it was worth it, Reef suddenly finds himself unable to speak. He curls up. He manages to tell her, yeah, yeah, it was. And then he flashes to a memory of his childhood, and then of Braverman, before managing to squeeze out a promise that he would tell her all about that day some other time, before finally breaking down and weeping for his friend. Credits roll. So where do we begin? First and foremost, I mean, I would have to be lying if I would say this is a film that's going to be loved by everybody. It's not. That still doesn't negate the fact that it's a good movie. I'll tell you this, and I don't really have a good one, so I can't speak to this, but a working knowledge of the layout of New York makes a lot of this film a lot funnier and more understandable to people. Because if you're not familiar with the neighborhoods and the layout and the people that live there, it just becomes a strange little movie that you're taking in. That, again, does not mean it is not unenjoyable, but you're not going to be affected by these looping shots of old neighborhoods in the late 60s Big Apple. At least if you don't understand, like, oh, where they're driving through, that's this neighborhood. These are the people that live here. And thus, it's a film that has some really good humor, but a lot of it is really subtle. Nothing here is actually designed to make one laugh out loud. Rather, this is a film that I'm going to say it would make one smile a lot, or drift along with the characters as we take their exploits in and maybe have a light chuckle. Because the story that we're telling here is really just the journey. It's the time spent catching up amongst friends. It's being lost. It's ruminating on the loss of a friend. And in that way, I find this story to be completely relatable. Not accepting the fact that Leslie has died. Still joking around and trying to face reality of the situation. Masking pain with humor. These are all things that people go through in their day-to-day -day life at some point in time. And it's very much relatable no matter who you are and where you come from. Conversations like this happen every day on the regular. It wasn't registered. Was he dead? Any minute I expect to see him come strolling along. 41. 41-year-old Leslie. 
not a perfect person, but uh, you had integrity. Exactly. Integrity. You didn't ask for it. You didn't want it, but he had it. The way some people have bo, he had integrity. He could spend two days over cents. Because he had such respect for the printed word. It was unbelievable. The guy must have published over 200 pieces in his time. Never fit a nervous stomach every time a, a set of galleys came in the mail. So what did that get him? All alone. Especially all alone at the end. At the end. He was stopped in the middle. Better in the middle than at the beginning. And that sort of kicks off the first major theme of this film, failure, or rather being perceived as a failure because one has died with their work in life unfinished. Out of all of them, Braverman, who again, we never see in this film, he's only referred to, he was the one who was flush with success when he passed. So he was this minor important figure in the world of these writers and intellectuals. And all of the friends who are coming together here are not quite yet there at that level themselves. Ottenstein's outdated political rhetoric and unwillingness to evolve, that makes his work get lost in the shuffle. He's already done before he starts. Weinstein talks a good game, but he still pretends he's this hip, young, up-and-coming essayist and poet waiting for that right time that he can really have his writing be recognized as genius. Levine is the second most successful writer out of the group, but the way that he's found success has not been to write his own original work, but rather to take up the duties of a critic and to attack others. Now, it's success that he's proud of, but ultimately it's something he worries is going to be viewed as lesser in the eyes of his friends, so he's very protective about his success. Levine is clearly uncomfortable that they see his writing on movies and as comic books to be lesser in their eyes, and he tries to justify this by pointing out the number of times he's been reprinted in various publications. Reef has taken a PR day job, so he is forced to write on his own time, and his novel is only half finished, something that he spends his days obsessing on, worried that if he were to die, he would never be remembered for his great work. Thus, at its core, Bye Bye Braverman is a meditation on how we spend our lives, and really what it means to have unfinished work out there in the world with people coming together to discuss, when is it the right time to die? How do you deal with that feeling that you should be having more success? Or perhaps this is the best you're gonna do and you're experiencing it currently. That's a terrifying notion for somebody who is still rather young, but honestly could be looking at being halfway through their own lives. No, you're wrong. Better at the beginning. You go out sure of yourself. Because in the middle, good or bad, uh, you know maybe where you're going and you want to see it through. To die there is not too nice. It's like meeting before the end of a Hitchcock movie. 
I don't know. I've walked out on a few. An old one, a good one. The lady vanishes. Oh, that's better. Or the 39 steps. Stranger on a train. Well, not the best. Oh, you're a Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. In a strange way, this is one of those films that revolves around death that has some of the most genuine depictions about how people feel and react to funerals. Think about it. Funerals, they're a production. They're draining. They're wildly inconvenient. And it's all being done. And it just causes heartache and frustration for those who are left trying to show their love and respect for the departed. Again, I'm not saying the departed are not worthy of that, but people have various ways of coping with this. They joke, they tell stories, they eat too much, they drink a little too much, and honestly, especially, let me double back, talk about eating your feelings. I mean, the lads in this film, they stop and get food at every available opportunity that one could make throughout the course of this day. In the film, from the start of their journey to the funeral, our lads in question, they consume hot dogs twice, coffee, pretzels, hamburgers, sandwiches, egg rolls. Part of that could be argued it's just kind of involved with blowing off steam, having fun, using this opportunity to get together as an excuse to indulge. Except for those of you who have gotten to experience the, and I'm using air quotes here, fun of a funeral, This is wildly relatable because on days such as those where emotions run high and stress is clearly coming to bear, people are able to really unhinge their jaws and throw down. Just another coping mechanism played into the grieving process. Jeez, I remember when my uh, paternal grandfather... um, passed people sent a lot of things but not as much as when my paternal grandmother passed and he was still alive people knowing he was around sent trays of food there was cheeses and rustic crusty italian bread and oh god exotic meat hot capagol mortadelle oh maron we ate our weight in just fatty Italian meats and cried and ate way too much and drank way too much and uh, it wasn't fun it wasn't a good day but looking back they were still bonding times I had with family members and it was all done around the food that we had that day people grieve differently and this movie really shows it well as far as I'm concerned likewise the ending of this film It's come to anger people over the years, but for me, it's more of a true reaction to having been to a real funeral. Moreau's reaction at the end of the day, to me, strikes it as being perfectly natural. The day's over. The services have concluded. All friends have parted. People have gone home. There are promises to get together soon. There's promises to have a meal and take in some movies. But now you're left with this moment of quiet. And when Monroe goes home and talks to his wife and has her say, how did the day go? The enormity of that situation hits him. And all he's left and able to do is break down and weep for the passing of his friend, finally acknowledging his feelings and being able to have that release that he couldn't have 
during the course of the actual day. It's funny, but it's true. When you go to funerals, when you get to see people pass, sometimes you're too busy to grieve. You're too busy helping the process along. You feel sad. You have emotions, but you don't get to have that final release. And therefore you go home and feeling like a crazy person, oftentimes you're left with these huge flooding feelings of guilt and sadness and whatnot that come pouring out. And it's perfectly relatable to people who have lost loved ones, who have lost friends. And I think this film nails it as to what it's like to come home from a funeral and be alone with your thoughts for real. Let's talk in praise of the acting. The work you have here is outstanding. Now, Book and Warden are wonderful here, as I would expect them to be. God, I love, love Jack Warden so much. He's just a treasure. And for what it's worth, I mean, Jessica Walter, she is, for her minor, minor part here, because she doesn't get a ton of screen time, but she is just making the most out of all of it. And she runs this amazingly fine line of just being this sex-starved widow who just on a dime will turn into an icy witch and then goes right back to being this vulnerable figure who's trying to seduce Siegel's character. For his part... Siegel carries the film and does fantastic work here, as you would expect him to. His own arc is a man just trying to grapple with the thought of both losing a friend and taking stock of his own life is something that is relatable and understandable, I think, to everyone who's at least hit a certain age in life. He's simultaneously grappling with his own concept of aging, as he himself is now in his early 40s, And he's older than he would like to be, but he knows he still has a lot of living left to do. The problem is, he hasn't had that level of professional success that he thought he would have had by now. So, in going to Leslie Braverman's funeral, he's literally using it as a yardstick to compare his own existence. You know, somewhat of a heady plot. Godfrey Cambridge is equally good here. I I mean, really, we're going to end up talking about him later because I'm definitely going to be covering The Watermelon Man on a future episode, and he's fantastic in that. But he's great here. It's the film's own version of zigging when the audience expects there to be a hard zag. When the collision happens and he gets out of the cab, the situation is set up, at least with the audience, with the initial positioning to sort of make this an awkward exchange. You have a car full of Jewish writers who are getting out to look at the damage, and then the guy getting out of the car seemingly is this gruff African-American gentleman whose question to them at first is, are you Jewish? Which is not the dismissal that they think it's going to be, Rather, he's trying to gauge if he's talking to the people that he himself claims as his own. Which, of course, humorously leads to mutual respect and understanding. And it gives the story a break from their strange, random search in general and allows them to have this moment of levity. The standout performance, though, here, at least in my opinion, is Joseph Wiseman. 
Mickey's perfectly cantankerous and fastidious as the former Professor Ottenstein, a man who spends the majority of this day being short and needling to all of the young men in the car with him. But as the story starts, when he gets that phone call, when he learns that Leslie Braverman has died, we really get to see a strong insight into his relationship with these, I'm using air quotes, boys. Upon learning of Leslie's death, Ottenstein calls out to God and starts demanding answers from his maker. Hey, you let up on us. You're getting cranky and spiteful. It's already the fifth one in six months. Golovich, Schlossberg, Posner, Amsterdam. Now Braverman. What are you running up there, Assyrian? You couldn't let Leslie alone. He was hurting you. Such a wonderful boy. <laughs> Such a classy writer. And what kills me is the way you keep hands on the lowest of the low. The fifth or eight times the ones are no good to you. Yes, right here in this building, that fat lawyer Klein. Anytime he looks at his watch, he, he turns his back on you. And what about Nicky, Nicky, the elevator man? And what about Max? Forgive me. No. Don't forgive me. Take Max, my son, the poet. I'll trade to him for Leslie. No questions asked. Ottenstein talking to God, angry about all of the friends he's lost, while, as he puts it, fifth-rate people still remain. The men in this car, the one whose funeral he's going to, those are really like his children. And when he makes his appeal, it's all the more touching. And yet, it's equally chilling when you realize he's actively wishing for the death of his real son, Max, rather than lose people like Leslie Braverman and the others who are in the car with him. It's selfish, but it's no less touching that these men mean so much to him. Now, I can hear you out there right now. Chris, how was this movie received? In hard, cold terms of box office numbers, I unfortunately can't tell you how many people paid for tickets. Not a ton. That much for sure. I can tell you it wasn't a hit commercially, but from the critical side, Braverman took a large number of lumps from the film Intelligentsia of the day. Something that honestly shocks me to no end. You see, Braverman opened on February 21st, 1968. And as a film, it was described by many as being vulgar, tasteless, and, most shockingly to me, racist in its depictions of Jewish people. I will elaborate. Renata Adler of the New York Times viewed this film to be throwing out jokes for the expense of Jewish people, noting that the affection and the satire turns quickly into a pogrom. Yeah, not any use of harsh language there. Favorite punching bag of mine, Roger Ebert, equally was confused by the final product. He called it a good movie gone wrong, and then he likened the premise to mocking the execution 
particularly noting that he didn't care for the offensiveness against what he thought were Jewish stereotypes that were found here, especially honing in on Alan King's rabbi role as being the worst offender. Even Murph over at Variety was shockingly dismissive, noting that the dark comedy that Sergeant Script put forth here goes off track hard. Instead, thinking that this should have been played straight for laughs instead of being a dark comedy. And he was sort of curious with the erratic use of Jewish ruggedness and the spirit of the native non-sequitur humor, which he called a plot stew that would offend the sensibilities of many and would titillate prejudice amongst others. Ouch! I'll say this, not everybody, though, was a hater. Box Office Magazine lauded Jessica Walter for her minor role here and sang the praises of Boris Kaufman's amazing cinematography throughout. While Charles Champlin of the LA Times did note that, yeah, the film has some problems, but he at least started his critique noting that this is both a funny and sad film about death, commenting on the duality of laughter and tears being found together in situations like these. Now, I'll tell you this. For me, this criticism is painfully dated, and it speaks both to the time that the film was made and to how people were perceiving things. You're dealing with a subject matter that tells a story about post-war Jewish intellectuals who live in New York City. Great. It's the 1960s. Jewish Americans had, for that time spent the late 50s and in the entire decade of the 60s being slowly assimilated into what the greater white American culture as a whole was. Jews and Catholics in the 50s and 60s were stopped being seen as being the other, and they were, air quotes, allowed to take their place into the generic melting pot acceptance of white community. Thus, they belonged, not like those people of color that we're not going to mention who were at the time protesting and fighting for their own unique civil rights. Thus, it's interesting when you look at stories like this that take place in neighborhoods in the world of Jewish characters that we are following, even at the time, they get flagged and mislabeled, at least in my opinion, of being stereotypical depictions of Jewish people and thus being racist. Here is my problem with this strange early form of white knighting. First, the characters here, I would argue, are real people, as in the fact that they're not heroes, they're not larger-than-life figures. They're simply your everyday common people friends, old schoolmates, and they're coming together to deal with their feelings and to sort of just grind out their shared loss about a common friend. Expecting them to be better than normal in their reactions, that takes away the dignity of allowing them to be, again, real human beings. Ones who make mistakes, who have opinions, who have pride, who sometimes go against the grain, who themselves have vices and picadillos. My argument is it's both racist and foolish to expect any group of people to be, air quotes, better, based on any form of religion or cultural heritage. 
That being said, too, none of these men are villains by any stretch. I would argue they're just your average people being seen on screen. Hence, why we like them, why they're relatable. I would argue, too, we are seeing here four main friends, and it's wrong to accuse them of being stereotypes, especially if you look back at what they're based on. Again, I know the novel itself was a work of fiction, but, and this comes up time and again, you're putting them in a certain slice of time and place within New York City. They're based on real authors who lived and were friends with another real author who died. That doesn't make them stereotypes. That makes them archetypes. Original portrayals of real people in this world. You're not punching down. You're just showing people as they live. And finally, people who take offense to Alan King's rabbi portrayal. First, King himself was a well-known Jewish comedian and a satirist of the day. He put his time in, he worked the late 40s throughout the 50s, doing the Catskill gigs, working the Borscht Belt crowds. He made a name for himself in those days. He was familiar as a cultural and raised religious Jew of how rabbis operated, and thus his own take on it rings true. And for non-Jewish people back in the day to walk in and to try to explain how kings take on a rabbi attempting to be current and tell jokes during a funeral, to say that's inappropriate, A, they don't know their ass from a hole in the ground, and B, they have a hell of a lot of nerve to try to tell another culture, another religion, their own business. For what it's worth, I can relate to King's portrayal. I have been to plenty of funerals and had plenty of priests and ministers in my day make utter fools of themselves at funerals for both friends and loved ones. So why should Christians think that they have the market cornered on having hammy religious leaders use funerals to be their own personal soapboxes to make a point to the living? Yeah, fuck off. In short, I'll end with this. To any of those of you who find this to be, quote, too Jewish, which I would say, bad idea. Or worse, you find this to be insulting to Jewish people. To those of you, I would say, I hope you've never experienced the, air quote, horror of watching an episode of Seinfeld. Because what you have here from 1968 with this film about friends coming together to mourn one of their own, they just happen to be Jewish. And what you would find on an episode of that classic sitcom is going to probably make you feel ten times worse than anything you're going to see here. In short, go park your high horse elsewhere. Unfortunately, though, in the end, it wouldn't matter. Braverman was not a box office hit. It got drowned out, both with the negative reviews and, frankly, because it was going up against little movies like, oh, Planet of the Apes, amongst others. And in time, it would fade into obscurity, becoming a film that was only ever talked about in the context of how good Siegel was in it, or how good Walters was in it. 
and with other people who hadn't seen it, but had heard, yeah, it's a pretty interesting movie. And thus it was made to be a cult movie that was mandatory watching if you were a fan of early LeMay work. And if you were simply in love with old New York. I did it again. I called him LeMay. I apologize. I'm so used to that. But for LeMet, for his part, he felt that he had made a mistake with this film. He considered it to be a very personal project, one that he felt should have honestly been a lot funnier than the final product was, which I feel bad for him because this is a great movie. Now, again, it's a movie that is a slice-of-life classic that I do feel should get more viewings and far more props than it currently has. Then again, that's my job, right? I'm supposed to point you out to things that I like, that I think not enough people have seen, that I think others would get real benefit from. And I can tell you this. For me, Bye Bye Braverman is one of those rare movies that actually, even though it's set in a very specific time, in a very specific place, because of the nature of its story and because of how it's portrayed, it is so relatable to so many people. All you have to have done is lost somebody and had to have gone to a funeral to be able to find the humor in why Bye Bye Braverman is so touching and so wonderfully fresh all these years later. For me telling you to see it, it's not me trying to oversell you on a movie that I think is somewhat cutesy or this is a really crazy cult film. No, I'm telling people they should see Bye Bye Braverman because ultimately it's a good film that points out something that is universal amongst all people in life. The version of Bye Bye Braverman screened here at the LSCE was the 2009 Warner Archive Collection DVD. That is a burned-to-order copy that comes to you bare bones with just the film available for viewing. Still, I would tell you this is a steal in my humble opinion because you get your very own secure copy of this film right now. And you can find it on Amazon.com for the low price of $9.99, which I would tell you is well worth it for the content that you're getting here. Now, I do personally wish that the Archive would release some sort of cleaned up version of the movie, or would at least give over the licensing for a Blu-ray release, and then an established company like Criterion or Kino Lorber would come along and would release a really nice cleaned up version done right with some retrospectives, interviews with the cast and crew who are still alive and around. But for the time being, we're just going to have to be grateful for the fact that we can get such a fine film ordered and seen. Now, remember folks, we here at the LSCE don't get anything for telling you where to purchase your films from. We just feel that in this day and age, it's important for people to still support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what you really want? More of what you know and love? Besides, this movie is, truthfully, really, really great. And I think is a stellar meditation on death, and taking stock in your life, and how people deal with grief, especially on those hectic days 
that we find ourselves called to the funerals of friends and family. So that being noted, I'm going to tell you this. What are you waiting for? Go out there. Get yourself a copy of Bye Bye Braverman today. You will thank me. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you and recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, thelscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm still very happy to announce we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of, just to give us a boost in those old rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms and it makes us more searchable and then we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. I'll say this, we're coming up on our end-of-the-year review, our retrospective episode. So, we're looking for information. We're looking for feedback from you, the listeners. Do you have any questions for us? Do you have any comments? Do you have any movies you want us to cover? Do you have things that you thought I got wrong? Well, we want to hear from you. So please, send us an email or an audio clip. Send that our way. Send it to LindenStreetCinemaExperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Hey, we use it here. You can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable, or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, Wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy. And remember folks, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.